Good morning, Chelton. My name is Maxine Shishmanian. I enjoy serving at Chelton through our community group, helping with the babies in the nursery, and primarily as a wife to my husband and mom to our three kids and one on the way. Today's scripture reading is from Daniel 1, 8 to 21. Daniel 1, 8 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. Church, I don't know, but isn't it great to gather together on each Sunday? There's something very special about Sunday morning worship service to me, that every time we sing together as a body of Christ, every time we read the scripture together, it moves my heart. As I pray that as you continue to partake in the presence of the Lord as people of God, that the Lord will speak to you. And that God's word will even become more real to you, that you reorient your life, resolve yourself to be more like Jesus as a result of coming together and worshiping him as one body of Christ. Now, as you can tell, some of you might have seen the midweek video, you just heard announcements, or you just saw the sermon graphic. By now, it's obvious that we are start starting a new sermon series in the book of Daniel with the theme of how God reigns over all our life affairs. That's what we will be talking about. And now, this is my own personal opinion. You can agree or disagree. But in my opinion, I think exilic literatures, whether it be books like Daniel, Esther, Ezekiel, or the part of Jeremiah, I think especially Daniel, and among the exilic literature, the entire Bible, 
is the one of the most contemporary and relevant and applicable books in the entire Bible to 21st century Christians. Why I think this is so crucial and so applicable to us is this. Now, when I say this book is an exilic literature, that means it's written in the time of exile. They are taken away from their own country, living in a foreign land. Now, if you consider Israel at the time, they are a monotheistic. They are God-fearing nation that loves God. They are one God, our Yahweh. They serve Him wholeheartedly. But from the Bible Belt, Bible-believing society to all sudden, they are taking themselves in exile to Babylonian kingdom that believes in polytheistic. They are pluralistic. There's more ambiguity. So in a sense, you're uprooted from the Bible Belt to the very secular culture where your belief in one God is considered as bigotry because it's exclusive. So how in the world are they supposed to live all of a sudden from a God-fearing believer in such a non-believing world? Does that sound any familiar to you? I think just about a generation or two ago, I think being a Christian was a relatively good thing. I don't know what merit you gain for being Christian in a world that we live in. And I think Daniel will give us guideline and roadmap to ask us this question. How are we supposed to live as Christian in a secular world? And how do you live as a believer in an unbelieving world? Daniel will show us such a way throughout. Now, I'll give you more background as we launch in. But quickly, as we dive into the, in Daniel's chapter 1, here are three things that I want you to remember. If I can summarize in one point, is either to how do you live as a believer in a non-believing world? Is one sentence is to neither assimilate nor separate, but embrace your dual citizenships. Let me say it one more time. Neither assimilate nor separate, but embrace your dual citizenship. Let me elaborate that. When I say neither assimilate, Rather than assimilating into those cultures that pulls away, cultivate spiritual discernment over assimilation. So when I say neither assimilate, cultivate spiritual discernment over assimilation. Nor separate, which means cultivate cultural engagement without separation. You will see how Daniel engaged in that in a moment. Nor separate, cultivate cultural engagement without separation. But third, embrace dual citizenship, which I mean, cultivate distinctive Christian identity in the world. When I say embrace dual citizenship, is embrace our roles as our earthly city, earthly nation God has called us. You ought to be faithful in that. And also, that should be seen with the primary lens of your heavenly citizenship. Your distinctive Christian identity is going to influence how you are to live as the citizens of this world as well. So neither assimilate nor separate, but third, embrace your dual citizenship. So as we go along, let's learn about the background of Daniel first. Look, I know we didn't read it, but look very first verse in the book of Daniel. Now, as you go about today's sermon especially, we'll talk about Daniel, yet cross-reference for your sake is 2 Kings 24, as well as Jeremiah 28 and 29. If you want to get ready, especially down the road, Jeremiah chapter, be ready for that. But when you look at Daniel 1.1, how does it begin? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, when you read the Bible, church, Bible can be many things. Bible can be narrative. In some part of Bible, it's parable. But also, Bible is a historical account, too. Yet it's a summary. So when you read that, it's what, why assume originally when I read it, oh, okay, Nebuchadnezzar came to Israel, conquered Israel, and now Israel's all in exile. But in reality, 2 Kings 24 will tell us more thoroughly that this was done in progression, in multiple years, many, many times. And Nebuchadnezzar will come back over and over, over again. So when you look at 2 Kings 24, one says that Nebuchadnezzar came around before Christ, 605, and made Jehoiakim his slave. The Jehoiakim becomes kind of servant. And then after a few years, around 597, Nebuchadnezzar will come back before Christ 597. Now, the fall of Jerusalem, when Jerusalem completely becomes, you know, Babylonian exile, happens in 587, 10 years after. But before that, actually, Nebuchadnezzar comes once again at 597 around. He does not take everybody away into exile, only 10,000 of them. If you look at 2 Kings 24, 14, that's what it says. He carried, Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of a Babylonian kingdom, carried away all Jerusalem, all the official, all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smith. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So they were taken of those 10,000 elite, the influencer of the society, and that's what Daniel was taken away at the time too. So read go to Daniel 1, 3 and forward. What happened? Then the king of commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in king's palace and to teach them the literature language of the Chaldeans. So what Babylonian kingdom does in order to properly subjugate this monotheistic, God-fearing culture, he first take away 10,000 10, people away, the top cream of the crop, elite influencer, to teach them about, hey, this is the way you are to live. I'm going to teach you a Babylonian way of life. And that's how you're going to influence the culture. It's, when you think about it, it's kind of brilliant in a sad way. Actually, all the history has done similar thing. Now, I am currently, I haven't finished it. I'm currently reading a book called Collective Illusion by Todd Roach, who was a former Harvard professor. And in that book, one of the premises that he talks about is that oftentimes the, when the few vocal ones say the same things over and over, over again, whether it be 1%, 5%, all the majority of the silent, even though they might disagree with it, they assume that, oh, nobody's saying anything, so therefore that must be the majority opinion. So thus everyone's thinking that whatever 5-10% is saying is all true. This is what Todd Roach says. In Twitter alone, he says, in Twitter alone, 80% of all content is generated by 10% of the users. It turns out that 10% isn't remotely representative of the American public, but you can see the problem. If 10% of the people hold a belief, but you think it's 80%, then unless you're willing to stand up to your group, you end up saying nothing, or you go along that result thinking in collective illusion as if that's the majority view. So when the few ones vocally loud, influencer one says that, and everyone tends to believe that, 
Likewise, Babylonian kingdom took away the elite of the elite, and they are trying to subjugate Israelite culture by bringing down the top down those elite. But his genius plan, there is a man who will throw a wrench to his genius plan. That's what we are about to study. So first, what we learn in the book of Daniel is neither assimilate, cultivate spiritual discernment over assimilation in a secular, pluralistic society we live in today. So let's take a look in detail how Babylonian kingdom was really trying to assimilate Israelite culture into their own way. Uh, if you look at verse 5, what are they trying to do here? Verse 4, they are, first of all, trying to change the language, right? They are teaching the language of Chaldeans. In verse 5, they are trying to assimilate them into Babylonian culture by changing their dietary. As like, hey, eat Babylonian food. Not only that, they are giving the top education. They enroll Daniel and friends to Babylon, the University of Babylon and giving them the best education you can possibly imagine from the top of the elite to all the way down. And not only that, verse 7, what they try to do? They are giving them new name. They are giving them, hey, Belteshazzar is your new name, Daniel. They are giving brand new names in order to distinctively change their identity. This is not an uncommon approach when the superior culture tries to subjugate whatever the culture they are trying to dominate. For example, uh, during the World War II, in the time that Korea was colonized by Japanese, between 1910 and 1945, when Japanese army invaded Korea, there, these are a few things they tried to do. First, they tried to change the language. As in that Koreans, you should speak Japanese right now. If you speak Japanese, we'll give you a higher government position. Second, they, they will change the history. No longer Korean history is on your autonomy. You are superior to Japanese culture. And then, not only that, they will change the names. You have new names, you have Japanese names rather than Korean names. You see, when the one culture is trying to assimilate, subjugate another culture, this is the things they did. So even look at what, what are they are trying to do. They are not only trying to physically subjugate Israelite, but also culturally and spiritually. What I mean by that, we'll talk about his dietary issue in a second. But when you look at verse 7 here, Daniel's given new name. Now, Daniel's name in Hebrew means, Daniel means God is my judge. Just like we were talking about, he reigns. He's the supreme judge overall as a monotheist culture. But what's the new name he's given? Belteshazzar. It's, as I said, Babylon was a polytheistic. They were believing in multiple gods. Out of those gods, name, one of them was named Bel. And it means... Belteshazzar means, Bel is my God. Now, Daniel said, no, God is the one who reigns supreme. My name is Daniel. My God is my judge. And also he's giving you identity. Bel is my God. How are you going to live in that? Not only that, when you look at verse 8 through 21, this is a famous account. Daniel refused to eat the food that Babylonian kingdom gives. Now, and Daniel says, I want vegetables. Now, is Daniel vegetarian? Or is he promoting vegan diet? Is that what is going on here? No, I think it's more than that. Actually, the most basic way of understanding his refusal to eat is that perhaps in the Leviticus 11, the dietary requirement that God had set in Mosaic law, what they're offering was violating that. 
He's like, no, I want to stand by my conviction before the Lord. It violates the law that he sets before me. And another on top of it, it may not be just a dietary restriction that God had set for Israelite. But do you remember Babylonian kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, were brilliantly trying to subjugate Israelite culture, both culturally, spiritually, physically. It most likely, very well likely, that they were also offering the very food they were about to give to Daniel. It could have been the very food that was used in idol worship. Perhaps in Belteshazzar, eat this food. Then it's not only it's a violation of the dietary law, but it's idolatry issue as well. So Daniel's like, I am not doing that. I'm not willing to assimilate. He's just standing on his conviction. Hey, a bell may reign in your kingdom, but in my mind, God reigns over all in the smallest things. And he's standing on his conviction. Now, oftentimes, Shelton, sermon ends here. <laughs> Meaning, therefore, you should have nothing to do with the world. Stand on your conviction. Battle against da-da-da-da-da. But let me kind of guide you through that. But did you notice there is a kind of sensical winsomeness about Daniel? Uh, God only, look at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. In other words, God does not only grant favor of God to Daniel, but God somehow grants favor of men to Daniel as well. There's some sort of winsomeness that those officials are like, Okay, you're, we hear you. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go what you said. And there's reasonableness in a Daniel. He's not saying, if you give me this food, I'm going to crash, I'm going to die, I'm going to create a revolution. He's like, hey, just test your servant for 10 days. Let's see what happens. You know, I'm not asking major thing. Just give me 10 days. Let's see what happens. Verse 12. The Daniel is not nonsensical, but agreeable. He's not being combative but winsome somehow in his conviction that even the officials who are supposed to carry out the command of their king, he was like, okay, I hear what you're saying. I'll go along with that. Now, don't consider Daniel as wish-wash. He's not because in the end, he was be willing to be put in lion's den and fiery furnace for his conviction. He would do that. He's not compromising here, but there's some sort of winsomeness. What is going on in Daniel's life? that typically what we hear is like, therefore, do not, world is bad, do not assimilate, everything's terrible. But there's something that another conviction that Daniel is operating by. Second thing we learn as we talk about book of Daniel is to nor separate, but cultivate cultural engagement without separation. Now, go to Jeremiah 28 and 29. This is really a crucial verse for you to understand what Daniel was perhaps thinking like when we preach, if you remember a couple years ago, church, we talked about the book of Proverbs. When we said that, when you read wisdom literature, it's always helpful to read not only Proverbs. Proverbs talks about morality. If you do good, you'll be blessed. If you do bad, you'll be punished. But if you read like the book of Job, it's like it's in, even to the innocent, suffering can come. And if you read Ecclesiastes, randomness, wisdom can be all different facets. So in light of when you read this exilic literature, Jeremiah 28 and 29 will give you also some framework. Now, what is happening? When you look at Jeremiah 28, there is a false prophet named Hananiah. Now, just clarification, this is different Hananiah. One of the Daniel's friends that we read today is also named Hananiah. It's two separate figures. But there's a false prophet named Hananiah in Jeremiah 28 says, have nothing to do with the Babylonian kingdom. 
slaughter them, kill them, whatever, separate from yourself from them, pray curse upon them, may the Lord break their neck, those Babylonian kingdoms. And Jeremiah, he was not exiled at that point. He was still living in Jerusalem, hears about it. And he's like, whoa, 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 red flag, red flag here. Let me actually correct this prophet. He was leading Israel like this, raise the war against Babylonian kingdom. What does Jeremiah say in 29.1? Jeremiah says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this is, this is what Jeremiah says. He hears about it, and this is what Jeremiah says. Fascinating. 29.4 and forward, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent to, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What is God saying, first of all? Hey, even in your exile, I am sovereign. I rule over this. You think it was Babylonian power that dominated you? No way. I am still sovereign. I sent you into exile. You think it was the Egyptian that led you into wilderness in the Moses time when they were in Exodus? No way. I led you in the wilderness. When you read Jesus' account, when you were tempted by Satan in the wilderness, in that chapter opening, it says, and Spirit of the Lord led Jesus to the wilderness. God is saying, even in your exile, even in your suffering, even in your agony, I'm still guiding your life through. Babylon has no word on you. I am the Lord who leads you into exile. Not only that, read verse 5, Jeremiah 29. Hey, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Have a life, basically, it's saying. Take wives and your sons, give your daughters in marriage. In verse 7, what does Jeremiah say? Here, Hannah and I just said, pray against them, curse them, break their neck. May the Lord do that. But Jeremiah says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare. Hannah and I think, bring curse upon them. Have nothing to do with them. Separate yourself out of them. Jeremiah just saying, pray for its welfare. Pray for the city of Babylon. And the Lord will God will lead you. And Jeremiah, what Jeremiah just saying is, live in it. Live in that exile. Don't just think you're a sojourner. Plan yourself. Engage in it. He's saying, hey, I don't want you to assimilate into Babylonian kingdom and culture. Have the Christian identity. Yet don't just bless a curse upon them. Engage in it. Live in it. Pray for its welfare and contribute in their society. Jeremiah is saying, if you remember last week, or maybe some of you are here, we, I quoted actually one of the New Testament scholars who is not a believer. In his book, The Triumph of Christianity, how Christianity spread in the first and fourth century of Roman Empire, it's because Christianity was so contributing to their pagan society too. This is what Bart Ehrman, non-believer, says in his book, In Triumph of Christianity, he says, it was a revolution that affected government practices, legislation, art, literature, music, philosophy, and on an even more fundamental level, the very understanding of billions of people about what it means to be human. This Christian movement did not just separate away from the world, but they were like, hey, I'm going to distinctively, 
work and live in this culture for the glory of God that changed the entire history of mankind. And yet, Jeremiah in the end confronts Hananiah, this prophet who told them, have nothing to do with the Babylonian kingdom. What does Jeremiah say in verse 8? For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So what is going on here? What is God trying to say to through Jeremiah to Daniel to all those who are in exile, who was contemporary of Daniel at the time? Third point that we learn through the book of Daniel is to embrace dual citizenship. Cultivate distinctive Christian identity in the world. Church, we are not just passing through. We are invoking, may your kingdom come, may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Our posture should just never be, everything in the world is bad. Don't get me wrong, as Daniel said, he's not assimilating. Don't bind to the, all the practices of the world. But distinctively, with Christian identity involving government, legislation, art, philosophy, music, in your field of work, what does that mean to contribute, pray for the welfare of the city that you are currently called in? If you look at verse 7, now I'm going back to Daniel here. How does he engage the world with a distinctive Christian identity? If you read Daniel 1.17 through 21 all the way in the end, what does he say? Here, as for those youths, God gave them learning and skill in literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And he goes on. He was so much better than any other of them. And verse 20 says, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them. Ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Do you know what was a disturbing truth about this passage is that? What Daniel is saying, he was better than those pagan prophets in their own practice. Daniel was better than the magician or pagan magician. He mastered the material to the degree that he was even better than them. Yet he did not assimilate into them. See, he was willing to be put in the fiery furnace. He was willing to be put in the lion's den for his conviction. He never assimilated into the culture, but he nor separated it. But with a winsomeness, he became such a winsome witness that in the end, even King Darius, we will learn, actually, he liked Daniel. He did not want to put Daniel in the lion's den. So I actually kind of like it. There's something about you I want to learn from. Children, what kind of witness are you making? If you over-assimilate into culture, you will become like the world. You will lose what it means to be Christian. So Daniel's calling is do not assimilate into the world. But if you over-separate yourself from the world, then you will lose what it means to be a salt and light in the world. You will lose what it means to pray for the welfare of the city, the nation, the world that the Lord has called you to do. See, we tend to either run to one or the other. We either over-assimilate that we are no different from the world. We live as the world lives. We lose what it means to hold the conviction of our Christian identity. That world and we are almost too similar. Or sometimes you overly separate ourselves in a degree that all we know is how to bite back. We must triumph. We must win. Raise the battle against the world. 
No, even in your exile, our God reigns. And he will bring about his will to completion in his due time. What direction are you learning? What does it mean to embrace the dual citizenship? What does it mean for us, Chelton, to be the 21st century Daniel? In the world, in your work spheres, in your school, in your friendship, are you over-assimilating or over-separating? Or what does that mean for you to have the distinctive Christian identity with love and compassion and yet winsomeness? There's conviction within you. There's winsome disagreement within you, not just hostile battle one against another. This is a hard calling, isn't it? I'm like, I'm, in my mind, is, as I'm preparing some bunch of practical questions comes to my mind. What about in this situation, that situation, that situation? I know it's easier to be said and done. And we will explore that throughout our series, Shelton. But if you're lost, you're like, God, but I don't even know what does it mean to have the distinctive heavenly identity that influenced the way I live today in the world. God, show me your will. If you're there, if you just don't know where to begin, that Daniel stood on his conviction, and yet there's winsomeness at the same time, and you how to engage, and you are like, that's such a delicate, only Daniel can do that. I can't. Well, let me show you ultimate Daniel who have done that for us. Just like Daniel, Jesus said to identity. Jesus was fully God and also fully man. He came into the sinful world, but he did not over-assimilate that he became sinful himself. He was perfect and sinless all his life. Yet he did not separate himself from the world either. He engaged with the sinners. He dined with the sinners. Even sinners find him so winsome that they wanted to find something in him. See, Daniel was led into exile. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will eventually be led to ultimate exile. In the end, we can be welcomed as homecoming even in our exile time because Jesus went to ultimate exile. He condescended to hell for our sins. In the cross of Jesus Christ, all the sins of the world, my sins and your sin was laid on him. Yet he did not retaliate. He absorbed it and paid a penalty of the sin. In the end, he went to the ultimate fiery furnace. He went to the ultimate lion's den so that in your fire furnace, in your lion's den, you can still hold your conviction. God, I feel like I'm in exile. I'm in a foreign land. I don't know where to go. All I feel, suffering, pain, and agony. But, oh, Lord Jesus, you went to ultimate exile for me. And when you're due season, you will bring me back home again. And I can live today, not out of panic, but I can rest today in my heart, knowing that you have won triumph in your due season. It is not my victory. You have won in resurrection. And I can rest and I can live with a distinctive Christian idea that you have called me today. Shelton, is there a conviction, wisdom, and winsomeness in a way that you live as a Christian in the world, in your sphere of influence that God has called you today? Uh, may the Lord grant wisdom to us, and may we look to the life of Jesus, death of Jesus, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to find the ultimate wisdom ultimate navigation that we need in our life. Let's pray together. Our God, a book of Daniel that we are about to embark on.
It's a delicate book. There's so much in it. And God, we all are in exile. <laughs> we are waiting for our homecoming today, O oh Lord. And sometimes I don't know, God, what to do in each situation. When do I speak up? When do I become silent? Often I do not know, Lord. What does it mean to hold on my conviction? What does it mean to be a little bit more agreeable? It's delicate. But God, I pray that you give us wisdom each day of our lives. That through those uncertain territories that we are walking through, through those uncomfortable conversations that we are having, may your kingdom come. May truly your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And God, in the end, eventually, ultimately, we are thankful that it is not up to us, but it is you who led us to exile, and it is you who will bring us home. So I rest in that. Oh, Spirit of God, thanks for groaning for us when we just don't know how to go about life. Oh, great Jehovah, guide us each day of our lives. We have so many questions but we believe ultimate answer is found in the life, death, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So show us your beauty as we are about to partake in communion today. Show us the depth of your love, depth of your sacrifice, the depth of your beauty that you become so clear in our mind that all the secondary affairs of the world in our lives put in order, put in right perspective. We need your help for that, O oh Lord. So be with us in your precious name. We pray, amen.